Welcome to Music History Monday for January 25th, 2021. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is When Richard Strauss Was Modernity, Salome and Electra. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the world premiere on January 25th, 1909, 112 years ago today, of Richard Strauss's opera Elektra at the Semperoper, the Saxon State Opera in Dresden. Today acknowledged as one of the masterworks of the operatic repertoire, the premiere of Elektra uncorked a degree of critical controversy equaled only by Strauss's own opera Salome in 1905 and Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring in 1913. We'll get to Strauss and Salome and Elektra in a bit, but first we've two important anniversaries to mark before moving on. We mark the birth in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, on January 25, 1927, 94 years ago today, of the Brazilian singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Antonio Carlos Jobim. He died in New York City on December 8, 1994. Jobim was one of the principal creators of Bossa Nova, the new wave movement in Brazilian music in the 1950s and 1960s, and one of the most important songwriters of the 20th century. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will wallow in his music and will feature four fabulous discs, all of them featuring music by Jobim as performed by the tenor saxophonist Stan Getz. Stay tuned. On January 25th, 2004, 17 years ago today, the then almost 63-year-old Bob Dylan, born 1941, filmed an ad for Victoria's Secret in an empty palazzo in Venice, Italy. The writer and musician Josh Jones observes that, quote, Bob Dylan's been pissing off his fans since he went electric at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, leaving scores of bitter folkies with feelings of betrayal, unquote. But never did the enigmatic, purportedly principled, reputedly sell-out-proof Mr. Dillon, born Robert Allen Zimmerman, raise more eyebrows, piss off more fans, and inspire more cries of sell-out than when he appeared in that Victoria's Secret ad in 2004. Yes, Dillon's music had been licensed for advertising previously to Apple, but he himself had never before appeared in an advertisement, though he has numerous times since. A link to the 30-second version of the ad can be found in the print version of this podcast. The advertisement is so limp that not even an intravenous infusion of Viagra could perk it up. The problems begin with Dylan himself. Never known for his sex appeal, the 63-year-old 
pencil-mustachioed Bob Dylan in the ad is about as sexy as a chicken liver. Then there's the weirdness of the ad itself, filmed in that empty Venetian palazzo with the Victoria's secret angel, Adriana Lima, and accompanied by Bob Dylan's song Lovesick from the Grammy Award-winning album Time Out of Mind of 1997. Filmed in hazy blues and grays, Dylan and Lima never appear together in the ad, and neither of them speak. Whatever sexuality passes between them is a product of the editing. Lima, scantily clad in skivvies and sporting angel's wings, struts in front of a window while Dylan sings, I see silhouettes. Cut to the turkey-necked Dylan, looking all hangdog serious. Back to Lima. We see her face and then her generous cleavage as Dylan completes the line, in the window. Back to Dylan, who stares dramatically and tosses his cowboy hat on the floor as he sings, I'm sick of love. Finally, it's back to the pouty, sultry Lima, who is now wearing Dylan's cowboy hat while he warbles, wish I'd never met you. We'll let the Freudians and pornographers speculate as to what that conclusion might mean. The ad is labored at best, an embarrassment at worst, which forces us to ask the obvious question. Why would an aging, iconoclastic folk rock icon consent to shill push-up brassiers and G-strings for a sexually exploitative corporation? Did he do it for the money? Maybe. But Dylan didn't need the money. He was already a very wealthy man. Did he take the corporate bait to remain relevant, to remind everyone he was still alive? No, because the public had not forgotten that he was still alive. His recently released album, Love and Theft, was still on the charts, and his upcoming Modern Times album, to be released in 2006, would go platinum. Perhaps, just perhaps, it was all a canny calculation, an inside joke that only Dylan and his closest followers would understand. You see, during a press conference held back in 1965, Dylan was asked, quote, if you were going to sell out to a commercial interest, which one would you choose?" Unquote. Those present laughed, and Dylan responded with a leer, quote, ladies' undergarments, unquote. I, for one, would love to believe that Dylan had indeed played the long game and that this was his long-anticipated ladies' undergarments ad. If I were to ask you, who was the most famous and controversial living composer in 1909, who would you name? Gustav Mahler, born in 1860? No, no. Mahler was then best known as a conductor and a composer of long and rarely performed symphonies. Igor Stravinsky, born in 1882? No. Stravinsky didn't appear on Europe's artistic radar until 1910, when his ballet, The Firebird, was premiered in Paris on June 25th of that year. Arnold Schoenberg, born 1874? 
1909, Schoenberg was hardly known outside of his native Vienna, and many, if not most, of those Viennese who did know his music considered him a crackpot. Okay, a talented crackpot. You know where this is going. The most famous, controversial, and not incidentally, wealthiest living composer in 1909 was Richard Strauss. Hands down, no question about it. Music History Monday for June 11th, 2018 marked Strauss's birthday and focused in particular on his controversial actions and inactions during World War II. The only controversies we are going to dwell on today are those created by his two so-called modern operas, Salome and Elektra. I began that Music History Monday post in 2018 with the following words, words I continue to stand behind. I will pull no punches here. In my opinion, Richard Strauss was one of the greatest composers of the 19th and 20th centuries. He was a melodist and musical dramatist on near par with Mozart, which is, I think, just about the highest compliment any composer can be paid. His brilliant, though admittedly sometimes sprawling tone poems, From Italy, Don Juan, Macbeth, Death and Transfiguration, Till Eulenspiegel's Merry Pranks, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, Don Quixote, A Hero's Life, Domestic Symphony, and An Alpine Symphony constitute virtually a genre of experimental music of their own. His superb operas pick up from where Richard Wagner's music dramas leave off, which inspired the wags of his time to call Strauss Richard II. He continued to turn out masterworks until the very end of his long life. His exquisite oboe concerto was composed in 1945 and Metamorphosen for strings, also 1945. They were composed when he was 81 years old. His four last songs, of 1948 was composed when he was 84 years old. In 1947, the 83-year-old Strauss declared with typical self-deprecation, quote, I may not be a first-rate composer, but I am a first-class, second-rate composer. Well, we beg to differ. Strauss was, in fact, a first-rate composer all the way around, a consummate technician, a dazzling orchestrator, a superlative harmonist who managed to be a modernist in terms of his expressive content, his use of time and chromatic counterpoint, and a traditionalist in terms of his use of traditional tonality all at once. He was born in Munich on June 11, 1864. His father, Franz Strauss, was the most famous French horn player in Germany and a holy terror. Franz Strauss had very particular ideas about music and about the musical education of his precocious son, Richard. The elder Strauss was famously outspoken about his hatred of radical romanticism. More than any other music, Franz Strauss claimed to abhor that of Richard Wagner, whom he called a subversive. Franz Strauss's attitude towards Wagner 
would have amounted to nothing more than the spiteful rantings of a musical crank were he not the principal horn player of the Munich Court Orchestra and therefore the principal horn player in the premieres of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, the master singers of Nuremberg, the Rheingold, and the Valkyrie. Strauss argued with Wagner constantly and told Wagner to his face that he had no idea how to compose for the horn. But for all his insufferable behavior, Franz Strauss was tolerated. Wagner himself wrote, quote, Strauss is an unbearable, curmudgeonly fellow, but when he plays his horn, one can say nothing, for it is so beautiful, unquote. Richard Strauss told this story about a rehearsal of one of Wagner's music dramas. Quote, Wagner once walked past the horn player Franz Strauss, who was sitting in his place in moody silence, and said, Always gloomy, these horn players, whereupon my father replied, We have good reason to be. Unquote. Franz Strauss oversaw his son's musical education, a rigorous program based on classical era musical models. He absolutely forbade Ricard to study, listen to, or perform music composed by radical romantics, music by Hector Berlioz, Franz Liszt, and that awful Herr Wagner. Well, we all know how well such parental proscriptions work, predictably. Franz Strauss's attitude accelerated his son's fascination with radical romanticism. At the age of 17, in open defiance of his father, Richard fell for the music of Wagner. Many years later, Richard Strauss wrote in his memoirs, quote, It was not until, against my father's orders, I studied the score of Wagner's Tristan and Isolde that I entered into this magic work. I can well remember how, at the age of 17, I positively wolfed down the score of Tristan, as if in a trance." Unquote. Wagner's music, with its harmonic and expressive audacity, contrapuntal detail, and its reliance on light motifs to create complex extra-musical references and meaning, became the decisive influence on Richard Strauss's mature music. It was a compositional maturity that set the concert world on fire. According to Harold Schoenberg, quote, from 1889, when Don Juan had its premiere, to 1911, when Der Rosenkavalier was staged, the most discussed man of European music was Richard Strauss. His tone poems were considered the last word in shocking modernism, and his operas, Salome in 1905 and Electra in 1909, caused riots and scandals. To the public, Strauss was the world's greatest composer. Everything he wrote received instant newspaper coverage. An aura of sensation surrounded the slim, tall man and his outrageous music." Unquote. In 1894, at the age of 30, Strauss composed his first opera, Guntram. Fourteen more operas followed. Strauss's final opera, Capriccio, was premiered in 1942, seven years before his death at the age of 85. 
His greatest operas, the operas that made him rich and famous, were composed back to back. Salome in 1905, Electra in 1909, and Der Cavalier, The Knight of the Rose in 1911. Salome. At the time of its production, Salome was considered outright pornography. It is not. In fact, Salome is a quintessential work of its time, an example of the sort of anti-repressive post-Victorian art that was exploding across Europe during the early 20th century. Art that put primal sexuality and the deepest, darkest aspects of the human psyche at the forefront of its expressive message. The story? The Irish author, poet, and playwright Oscar Wilde was fascinated by the biblical story of Salome, the naughty 16-year-old stepdaughter of Herod who was responsible for the gruesome death of John the Baptist. In 1892, Wilde turned Salome's story into a play not one to repress his or anyone else's sexuality. Wilde's Salome is filled with a degree of eroticism, intrigue, obsession, and outright perversion that guaranteed its eventual, if controversial, success. Using a German translation of Wilde's play, Strauss's librettist, Hugo von Hofmannsthal, sliced and diced it to fit Strauss's specifications. The opera's plot, Salome is a bored teeny bopper for whom every man has the hots, most notably her stepfather, King Herod. A kinky little vixen, Salome takes a shine to the filthy, emaciated, fire and brimstone spewing John the Baptist, who is being held in a dungeon there at Herod's pleasure palace. Salome begins to obsess over John and sweet talks Naraboth, the captain of the guard, into bringing John to her. Salome comes on big time to Jay the Bee. He blows her off and she gets ticked. Salome does her famous dance of the seven veils striptease for her stepfather Herod, who, addled by testosterone, offers her anything she wants. Salome wants John's head. She gets the head. She kisses the head, covers her lips with John's blood, and explicitly orgasms in the process. Herod Shocked and filled with revulsion, orders Salome killed, and she is crushed beneath the shields of his palace guard. Splurt! Curtain! Applause! You know, there's nothing like well-written music to intensify action and feeling and to make the implicit explicit. And in his setting of Salome, Strauss pulls no punches. His score is an object lesson in extravagant over-the-topness. Was the opera controversial? Of course. Was it savaged by the critics? Absolutely. Even Kaiser Wilhelm II, who would do his own bit of damage to the world starting in 1914, was upset by Strauss's Salome, saying of Strauss and his opera, quote, I really like the fellow, but this will do him a lot of damage, unquote. Strauss laughed all the way to the bank dryly pointing out that the damage, quote, enabled me to build my villa at Garmisch, unquote. And there you have it, 
for all of its salaciousness and perversion and psychopathology, Salome was fully relevant to its time, and it put derrieres in seats. The numbers tell the story. Within two years of its premiere, which took place in Dresden on December 9, 1905, Salome had been produced in over 50 cities. Electra. Strauss one-upped himself with the composition of his next opera, Electra, because when it comes to personality disorders, the title character of Electra makes Salome look like Ms. Goody Two-Shoes. Princess Electra is the daughter of King Agamemnon and Queen Clytemnestra of the Greek city-state of Mycenae. She has two sisters, Iphigenia and Christosthenes, and a brother, Orestes. Deep background. On his way to the siege of Troy, Agamemnon's ships were becalmed. In order to get the breeze a-blowin' once again, Agamemnon sacrifices his daughter Iphigenia to the goddess Artemis. When he finally returns from Troy with his Trojan princess Cassandra in tow, he and Cassandra are murdered by Queen Clytemestra, still royally pissed off over the death of her daughter Iphigenia, with a little help from her boyfriend, Aegisthus. Strauss's opera begins soon after the murder of Agamemnon. The murder of their father has enraged Orestes and driven Electra to madness. Together, they plot their revenge. Orestes kills Clytemnestra and her squeeze, Aegisthus, for which the Furies hound him into madness. Electra requires no such hounding, as we observed just moments ago. Grief and anger had already rendered her stark, raving lunars. Strauss's Electra concludes with a crazed Electra, dancing wildly for joy in the blood of her dead mother, dropping dead. Recapping events. Father kills sister. Mother kills father. Son and daughter kill mother. Son goes nuts and daughter drops dead. Writes critic Hetty Weiss, quote, Electra blasts its way into the darkest emotions and most ritualistic impulses of a powerful family that has run amok. And during the course of its uninterrupted 100 minutes, it conjures the sort of love, hate, fear, rage, alienation, and quest for bloody vengeance that is the very reason for opera's existence." Unquote. To portray the violence and the madness of the story and its characters, Strauss created music that is equally violent and insane by hewing close to the edges of atonality. His score is a spectacular compositional tour de force, employing pretty much the largest orchestra ever called for in an opera. Strauss's Elektra is musical storytelling of utmost brilliance. Its razor-sharp character depictions and brilliant storytelling notwithstanding, Elektra remains a challenge for listeners today, 112 years after its premiere. With this in mind, we must feel a bit of empathy for those audiences and critics who were hearing it for the first time back in 1909, audiences and critics who could not be expected to understand the opera on its first swing around the block. The following rather breathless, foaming-at-the-mouth review 
by W.J. Henderson is typical of the critical reaction to Electra. The review appeared in the New York Sun on February 2, 1910, after Electra's New York premiere. Quote, In Electra of Strauss, jarring discords, the desperate battle of dissonance in one key against dissonances in another, settle themselves down into total delineation of shrieks and groans of tortures physical and audible in their gross realism. Can you conceive of the inward scream of a conscience in the flames of the inferno being translated into the polyphonic utterances of instruments writing in a counterpoint no longer required to be the composition of two or more melodies which shall harmonize with one another, but of melodies which shall spit and scratch and claw at each other like enraged panthers? Snarling of trumpets, barking of trombones, moaning of bassoons, and squealing of violins are but elementary factors in the musical system of Richard Strauss." Unquote. Oh, whoa! We can only hope that Mr. Henderson took a Xanax and a nice warm bath after writing that review. As I never tire of pointing out, vis-a-vis -vis critics, we remember Strauss's Electra just fine, but we only remember W.J. Henderson because he panned the opera. An appropriately nightmarish production of Electra in its entirety can be seen on YouTube, starring Leonie Reisenek as Electra and Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau as Orestes, with the Vienna Philharmonic conducted by Karl Böhm. A link to that performance can be found in the print version of this podcast. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.